Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a UGA study suggests unconscious bias in the healthcare system regarding individuals with intellectual disabilities and their COVID-19 treatment. And a group of my students, uh, led by a social worker who's the lead author of this paper, Brooke Felt, she was the one who kind of came up with the idea of the people with intellectual disabilities and how they were being triaged in emergency rooms across the United States. And so they wrote that paper, and when I read it, I knew immediately that this was a problem that we had to put out in the literature. Also, the city of Tucker is booming in terms of economic development, and that means jobs. We'll hear how the city of Tucker plans to boost its workforce. All that's coming up next. But first this, authorities are still investigating what led to a boat explosion yesterday on Lake Lanier, injuring six people. Three at this time currently in the hospital. Two teams had to be airlifted to Grady Memorial Hospital and one woman was taken by ambulance. The blast occurred as the boat was refueling at a gas dock yesterday near the Margaritaville Resort. The Hall County Fire Marshal's office is investigating the cause of the explosion. Shifting to our daily COVID-19 news, Georgia is still hovering around that 28% fully vaccination rate. According to the Department of Health, more than 6.5 million doses have been administered. Georgia still ranks in the bottom in terms of states and their vaccination rate. Finally, the field is wide open, kind of, now that Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms will not seek a second term. And if you're keeping score at home, former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed at this time has not made any official announcement. But there's quite a bit of hinting, so to speak. Local businessman Ryan Glover posted on Instagram over the weekend a photo with Reed and apparent supporters. The post from Glover included the quote, In Kasim, we trust. Also, current Atlanta City Councilman Andre Dickens reportedly will make his announcement soon. In fact, take your pick as to who else may enter the Atlanta mayoral race. At least that's what Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks thinks. Well, I think all of the people who ran in 2017, at least the top top uh, contenders, will have are thinking about it right now. Mary made the runoff, so I think she has to think about it. Kathy Willard, even though she said before that she was not going to do it, has to think about it. Peter Ammon is definitely thinking about it. Um, and I think that you might even see someone like Kwanzaa Hall, who did not perform well in 2017, but won the special election for Congress, uh, think about running now as well. So, you know, you'll see if Mayor, especially if Mayor Reed does not run, I think you'll see at least two people who ran in 2017 um, who will get back out there and run again this go around because it's, it's an open field, it's an open race. Um, this is going to be really interesting. But again, you know, the, a lot of it is going to depend on whether or not Mayor Reed decides to run and when he makes that announcement. Um, if he decides to drag it out and wait a month or so, other people will get in. They're not going to wait. Uh, the election is less than six months away. I think it's November 2nd. So we're inside of six months already. 
there's a new reporting period at the end of June. So people have to get to work raising that money right away. So he'll get he'll be given maybe a week or two grace period that other people jump up. All right, stay tuned. I can't tell you who is not running for mayor, and that is me. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The most recent job report released last Friday was disappointing. It was not what analysts and economists expected. Just over 266,000 new jobs were added in April. It was predicted at least a million new jobs would be added. And the unemployment rate rose to 6.1 percent, according to the Labor Department. Still, in addressing the report, President Joe Biden found a silver lining. But when we passed the American Rescue Plan, I want to remind everybody, it was designed to help us over the course of a year, not 60 days, a year. We never thought that after the first 50 or 60 days, everything would be fine. Now, here in Georgia, the state unemployment rate is 4.5 percent. That's according to the state Labor Department. But there's one nearby city that's desperately seeking workers because they have jobs. The city of Tucker, Georgia, is located in DeKalb County, not too far from Atlanta, with a population just over 36,000. And Tucker is experiencing, quote, an economic renaissance of new developments. And yes, that does mean jobs. So there's been a multi-agency initiative to lure workers. But how? Well, join me now is the president of the Tucker Summit Community Improvement District, Emery Morseberger, as a name that y'all probably know. Emery, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, thank you. It's great to be here. And we're excited about this Wednesday. At least 600 workers immediately in, in the Tucker Summit CID. And we're pulling out all the stops to attract some great people for incredible long-term jobs. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but I want to begin with this, Emory, because, you know, it's estimated the nation as a whole lost 22 million jobs due to the pandemic. And in all your experience as it relates to economic development, and that was such an unprecedented time in our nation. Just your overall thoughts on all of this that's happened since last year. I think we've learned a lot about each other. We've learned about all of our systems We've learned our strengths and our weaknesses, and I think this has actually brought a lot of people together. Um, my family of seven daughters and seven grandchildren spends, spent more time together in the last 14 months than in our entire lifetime. <laughs> so there were some good things, and a lot of our, our companies in, in Tucker learned how to adapt and, and thrive, and, and we have had some huge successes. That was my next question, because you are well in touch with businesses in Tucker. Were many able to withstand the economic hardships because of the virus, Emory? We had some people that were hurt, but a lot of them, if they got knocked down, they picked themselves up and got going again. Many of our companies quickly adapted to whatever the requirements were and kept on going. They put dividers between their workers they gave out masks, they used hand sanitizer and set up all kinds of different protocols, but they, they thrived. Um, we, we have a company called Prime Meats, mm-hmm. the major supplier of meats to restaurants in Atlanta, and, and restaurants shut down. So this company went online and did better selling meat online for delivery than they were to selling it to the restaurants. We had another company called uh, Georgia Furniture Mart that, that has had a record year because people hunkered down in their homes 
mm-hmm. and instead of traveling, bought furniture for their homes. So they they had a banner year last year all over Atlanta. Well, let me ask you this, Emery. What about for some businesses, sadly, do you know that might have had to close down for good or might be reimagining how they're going to reopen? Well, we see some restaurants and some service businesses that are still struggling, but we've got stars and strikes on Mountain Industrial that that closed, but they have reopened. And in fact, they're looking for 50 workers now. Mm-hmm. And, and and they have they have to turn away people because they don't have enough workers to, to man their operation. They're recovering and they're going great. How would you then describe what the city of Tucker can offer to a business or maybe a, a corporation thinking about putting their headquarters in Tucker? Or how would you describe what the city of Tucker can mean from an economic development standpoint? Oh, you're striking a nerve. It's a good <laughs> nerve. Um, Tucker is a great place to do business. The, the government is friendly. Our location is spectacular. We're, we're, we've got Highway 78. We've got easy access to 285 and 85. We have two different MARTA lines running through our CID. So we got good transportation. And, and we've got a, a good employment base of, of all levels of people there ready to go to work. So Tucker's been great. Mayor Frank Almond has been a superstar in, in working with us to get through this, this pandemic. And, and from the beginning, we said we're going to all work together as a team. And how diverse are the industries? You mentioned the restaurant uh, sector, but what about other industries there that are thriving? Do you see more manufacturing or production type companies or just a mixture of a lot? We, we've, we've got logistics, we've got manufacturing, and we've got a number of service businesses. We've got Tucker Brewing Company, the number four brew pub in the country right there in Tucker. They not only manufacture beer for distribution throughout Georgia, but they have an incredible restaurant. They're looking for 20 workers right now, all kinds of workers. We've got Thermopack that makes meals ready to eat. Hmm. And people hunkered down, they bought more food ready to eat. Thermopack has done very well. They need another 20 workers. They'll be at our job fair on Wednesday. And if you're just joining us, I'm joined by Emery Morseberger. He's a president of the Tucker Summit Community Improvement District. And we're talking about the city of Tucker's initiative to lure workers to the city. Let's talk about this economic renaissance that you all have said that the city is experiencing. What's been the catalyst for that? Has it been these new businesses that have come online recently, or has this been growing? It's been growing. There's there's a lot of people who want to work close in. There's a lot of people who want to live close in, but not all the way in. Okay, <laughs> Tucker is just outside the perimeter, and and has just been an amazing place for people to come to work. Uh, and they can get there easily from any direction. And we've got so many jobs from from the bottom to the top, and they're all available right now. Well, let's talk about this job fair, because this is a product of, as I mentioned earlier, uh, various agencies and organizations coming together. For our listeners who are probably been waiting to get to this part of the conversation, when is the job fair? Where is the job fair? And what kinds of jobs can folks expect to learn about? The the job fair is this Wednesday, the 12th, from 10 to 2. 
and it is at the Stone Ridge Event Center on Stone Ridge Drive, just off of Mountain Industrial and Highway 78, the Stone Mountain Freeway. Uh, you can go to our website, tuckersummitcid.com, and get more information, and it will be uh, that we will have at least 25 major employers there seeking great partners for, from, from every level. We'll have Pepsi, Macy's, Thermopack, Stars and Strikes, Tucker Brewing, Ram Tool, and a whole lot of other companies. Uh, one company uh, that I mentioned that I forgot to mention, Atlanta Air Filter Sales, has mm -hmm. uh, been selling a massive amount of air filters because they have special filtration to deal with, with the COVID germs. And so they've been going strong and they need workers, all kinds of people. And Emory, with, with all your decades in economic development and regional growth, you know how important transit and mobility are. How is Tucker developing in this area? Uh, for folks not only to get around in Tucker, but in getting to Tucker, are there some barriers? Would you all like to see more transit options? And if you say scooters, I'm going to scream. <laughs> we, 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 um, we, we have great MARTA service. Uh, we are actually working on a BR, a bus rapid transit station at near, near 78 and uh, Mountain Industrial uh, that will serve probably 100,000 people a day. Uh, we're, we're continuing to upgrade all of our roads and, and talking about mobility, uh, we've even invited a couple different organizations who serve people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Maybe mobility challenged people can get a job and, and thrive here in, in Tucker Summit. We want, we want everybody that's willing to work. And, and we've got a lot of companies willing to help. We, we've had a, a great partnership with, with Piedmont Tech, mm -hmm. Dr. Clark over there, he's ready to train people. We've got the uh, Georgia DeKalb workforce people that are willing to actually pay for the first six weeks of somebody coming to work. And um, we've reached out to the refugee community in Clarkston. Uh, we visited a number of apartment complexes throughout the area and found that there were a lot of people that wanted to get jobs and just didn't know quite how to get out and get them. And, and we're helping them every step of the way. And so y'all have been going to the community, uh, which yes. some would argue that that's probably the, the best way to let folks know about jobs. And, and we're talking about a need to grow the workforce. Perhaps housing is of issue, too. How would you assess housing affordability in the city of Tucker? Uh, we've got a tremendous variety of housing. I mean, we don't, we don't have any uh, $2 million houses like they do on the north side, but we've got a lot of good workforce housing. You're picking on the north side, Morris. Affordable. Pardon me? You're picking on the north side for having $2 million homes. <laughs> well, uh, that's not where our workers are going to come from. I hear you. I hear you <laughs> we're, on we're that. focusing on where our folks live. That's a very good point. But no, I want you to finish up and talk about housing affordability because you and I both know that is probably right at the top of this region. All those cities and that are within the ARC, you, you and I both know that housing affordability is a major, major issue. We, we've got probably uh, 50,000 apartments within a half hour bus ride of all of these jobs. Mm hmm. 
okay, that, that, is, that is on MARTA. Uh, we, we've got easy connections to everywhere on, on the, the north and the east side. We, we are ready for action. And we got good roads that, that don't block up. And finally, have you all stressed to businesses, and I don't know if this is something that you all get involved in, but much like with housing and, and transit and mobility, that in, in order to grow Tucker's workforce, you have to ensure a livable wage for folks, too. I mean, I know you can't tell businesses what they should pay people, but do you feel like these businesses, all these jobs that you're talking about where you need workers, that folks can have a livable wage here? We, we, we've got companies that, that are... Are, are dying to get workers and they're doing they're doing a lot of work on this job fair coming up Wednesday and and they're not getting workers just to lose them right away mm-hmm. the, the keep workers is you treat them right and 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 our, our employers treat people right um, I, I I'm sure we 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 won't be the highest paying people in the whole country but we we will be right there in the market and we plan to be competitive every step of the way. One other issue that we're seeing is a lack of child care. Mm-hmm. That was my next question. People with kids ha- can't just leave the two-year-old a- at home and go to work. So, so that's one thing that the government has, has kind of dropped the ball on is, is getting child care reactivated. You get a child care center reactivated, 30 people can go back to work. Uh, and that's that's critical to us, the child care centers. And it'd be great if the schools could could have summer classes so that kids have something to do during the summer and, and, and their parents can go to work uh, full or part time. Emory, how do you see the city of Tucker and its future right now? Like I said, I think you had about 36,000 residents. Is Tucker growing too fast and then you all are outpacing your, your workers there? How do you see the future of this city here? Tucker is a great suburb and it's growing right at the right pace. There, there's a good rate of construction of new housing and new businesses. Uh, it's not overloading its systems and, and it, it is well managed. Um, our businesses enjoy being in Tucker. I, I, it's a good place to be for the long haul. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's got other assets. It's close to Emory University and the CDC. So we have a lot of folks that work there. We actually have all, some biotech operations in mm-hmm. our CDC that, that will be looking for employees this Wednesday. We have all kinds of different jobs available on Wednesday. Emory Morseberger, president of the Tucker Summit Community Improvement District, and we've been talking about the city of Tucker's initiative to lure workers to the city. We'll post links to the Tucker Job Fair information on our website. Emory, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation as always. And and we look forward to seeing you all at 10 o'clock on Wednesday the 12th. It will be an incredible experience in an incredible place. And Emory, just for folks who might be concerned, you know, for COVID-19 guidelines, will this obviously you all be practicing those measures? We are we are totally COVID protected and complying with all of the rules. And uh, that's why we're asking people to register in advance so, so that we can govern the flow during the day. Emory, is it possible that some of these companies might be hiring right on the spot if someone needs- They're going to be interviewing and hiring on the spot. Yes. All right. Good news. Thank you so much, Emory. I appreciate it. 
Take care of yourself. Great. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Have a great week. You too. Bye. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As with nearly every aspect of our daily lives, the COVID-19 pandemic amplified already existing disparities or inequities in many, many areas. And it was glaringly evident within various levels of health care for patients diagnosed with the coronavirus and for those requiring what they call emergency triage protocols. Now, all this is detailed in for a particular patient group that we're going to talk about. It's all detailed in a new medical paper that suggests unconscious biases in the healthcare system may have influenced how individuals with intellectual disabilities were categorized in emergency triage protocols. The study was published in the Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness. Well, join me now to talk about the study is one of the participating authors of the study. Kurt Harris is the director of the Institute for Disaster Management in the University of Georgia's College of Public Health. He joins me now. Kurt, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. And let's first bring up, begin with a little background on UGA's Institute for Disaster Management. This is a research and a, a training hub for students as well. Tell our listeners what you all are doing there. Yeah, Absolutely. So we've been around for a little over a decade. Uh, We have several academic programs, including a master's in public health in disaster emergency management, a graduate certificate in disaster emergency management, and an undergraduate minor in disaster emergency management. And where that really becomes important, particularly as we look at our graduate certificate, is that we're looking for all disciplines to come in and to receive training into this program. Because it doesn't matter what type of job ultimately you have, at some point you are going to experience a disaster. And you need to know how to be prepared and how to be willing to respond to that disaster so that ultimately you can give back to your day-to-day business activities. And I think often for a lot of folks like me, when we think of disaster management, we're probably thinking more of those a hurricane or a storm or something like that we want, that we all experience here in Georgia. Do people often think of health care issues and a pandemic when it comes to disaster management? So I think the answer is yes, but maybe not in all circles. And I think for the most of the part, the public certainly recognizes the hurricanes and the tornadoes and so on. But from our perspective, when we look at that all hazards point of view, which is the foundation of how we prepare for disasters, we certainly have to consider all of the natural, we have to consider the man-made, the technological, as well as the terroristic type of disasters. Mm -hmm. So we've done a lot of preparing for Ebola. Uh, We did a lot of work of Ebola when it came through in the 2014, 2015 area. Uh, We did a lot of work with pandemic influenza back several years ago Mm -hmm. as well. So it's fairly common to deal with these types of issues as it relates to to disaster management, in addition to the ones that you were speaking of. And Kurt, 
last year as the world, the nation, obviously states, Georgia, prepared to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. What's been taking place at the Institute that you all have been involved in? So I think a lot of the same things that the state has been doing is trying to put out a lot of good scientifically sound information about what we can do at home, how we can self-isolate, how we can self-quarantine, the whole notion of avoiding handshaking and hugging and knowing your comorbidities, knowing when to see a physician, knowing when to see clinical treatment and when not to. So I think a lot of the same things that have really been preached all across the state, all across the nation, and really all across the world. You know, Kurt, this study, I mean, the title alone says a lot. Discrimination and bias in state triage protocols towards populations with intellectual disabilities during the COVID-19 pandemic. That says a lot. How did you all, how did you come to participate in this? So it's an interesting story. So when you go back to March of 2020, when the University of Georgia actually shut down due to the COVID um, outbreak actually occurring, I had never actually taught a virtual class. All the classes that I'd ever taught at the university level were always in person. So this was very much a learning experience for me, but it was also very much a learning experience for our field. So when you look at disaster management, obviously this is something on this order of magnitude that we had not dealt with before. So the majority of my class periods at that time involved myself and my students just having discussions around unsolved issues, new and emerging information that was coming out, why things were changing, um, sometimes overnight because we were learning so much at that time because everything was still new. Mm-hmm. Well, in having those discussions, we weren't doing our typical PowerPoint lectures, and we really focus on that experiential learning aspect of disaster and emergency management. So it came time to give a final exam. And I thought to myself, how am I going to give a final over these discussions that we've had? I was also in the process of reviewing many, many papers that were coming out for coronavirus. And I knew that there were so many topics that had yet to be covered. So I challenged my students to um, do their final exam in this way. They split up into two groups. And I said, come up with a topic that has yet to be solved and propose solutions on how that could be solved. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be your final exam. And a group of my students, uh, led by a social worker who's the lead author of this paper, Brooke Felt, she was the one who kind of came up with the idea of the people with intellectual disabilities and how they were being triaged in emergency rooms across the United States. And so they wrote that paper. And when I read it, I knew immediately that this was a problem that we had to put out in the literature. And so we worked for probably about six months on the paper, getting it ready so that it could ultimately be published in the journal that it was published in. The work over these six months, what did that entail for the students? Were they collecting data? So no real data was collected necessarily, but we did what's called a literature review. So our students really got into the literature and you can find tons of anecdotal stuff that's out there. You can find things that are in the peer reviewed literature. And our students started just searching around that topic to gather as much information as they could as it relates to this particular topic of those with intellectual disabilities being discriminated against. So it was really more of a literature review. Okay, gotcha. Because I read, and I'm going to quote you all here, some states had emergency protocols saying that individuals with brain injuries, cognitive disorders, or or other intellectual disabilities may be poor candidates for ventilator support, close quote. And so you all are talking about the possibility of the scenario that in these emergency protocols that perhaps patients with intellectual disabilities were not prioritized over other patients? Is that what you all are saying? 
So yeah, and those are things that can actually be found that are in the open literature. Mm -hmm. So that quote is directly, I believe that's from the Alabama. We can check the paper here in just a second, just to be certain. But that actually came from Alabama. So that was actually part of their policies. And if you actually look at it a little bit further, they even revised the policy to say, you know, people who have end organ failure may not actually be qualified to get a ventilator. Mm. But then they define a little bit further what end-stage organ failure meant. And severe mental retardation was actually a part of what they considered to be end-stage organ failure. And we should note that terminology, that phrasing, I know for some folks it, it's very un- uncomfortable, but that is terminology that is still used within the medical field today. So we just want to note that. And also, too, Kurt, for folks to know that you all cite this as unconscious bias. So I suspect because of the overwhelming coronavirus patient load of emergency rooms, hospitals, and clinics, this was not intentional. This study is not saying this was intentional by healthcare workers. Yeah, and that is a critical point. And I want to make sure that we really do touch on that. So we're in a very different environment than what we are typically. So we're in a population level health environment. And clinicians in the United States, and really for the most part, probably around the world, are trained to individual level healthcare, mm-hmm. which means if you show up that they exhaust every resource that they have available to ensure that you have a positive health outcome. When we get into a population level health environment where resources become scarce or we maybe we don't have enough resources to be able to treat everyone that has an illness, ultimately decisions have to be made. And our clinicians aren't really trained on making those decisions in medical schools. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Kurt Harris. He's director of the Institute for Disaster Management in the University of Georgia's College of Public Health. Our discussion centers on a study that suggests unconscious bias in the healthcare system as it relates to individuals with intellectual disabilities and their COVID-19 emergency protocols treatment. There's another aspect to all this too, Kurt, and that is for those COVID-19 patients with intellectual disabilities, hospital protocols for safety reasons might have included the absence of, a, of an advocate or a caregiver who could have been helpful in, in advocating for these patients or simply in communicating uh, for these type patients. You all cite that as well. Yeah, and again, not to the fault of clinicians, because mm-hmm. when you look at the social distancing models that have been put in place, I mean, that's actually a sound practice. You want to limit as much interaction as you can within your waiting rooms or within your um, inpatient visit rooms and so on. However, for some of these individuals who may not have the ability to speak or they may not have the ability to communicate or honestly, they just choose not to communicate, an advocate must be present in there for them so that they can speak to their medical histories, Mm -hmm. so they can speak to their current state of mind, um, potential differences um, in their behaviors as of late. All of this becomes extremely important for that individual who's ultimately being treated. Kurt, do you know if there's data on COVID-19 deaths that also identify those with intellectual disabilities? I know there have been some reports out there, but what do you know? Have you seen anything? So I haven't necessarily seen that data yet, but here's what I do know. About 26% of our population in the United States has either a physical or an intellectual disability. About 6.5 million of those actually have the intellectual disability. What we also know is that many of them are actually prone to additional comorbidities in addition to having their disabilities. And it's those comorbidities that we know coronavirus is ultimately attacking and their mortality rates go up significantly 
for those that have these, um, these types of comorbidities. So if they have these comorbidities and they're potentially being discriminated against unconsciously in the emergency department, then the potential is that you could actually see higher mortality rates for that group of people. Because this is one of those patient populations that, let's be honest, Kurt, we just didn't hear a whole lot of in the media uh, in terms of we, we obviously when all this started, we talked about populations at risk, including the, the elderly, uh, those with pre-existing conditions. Then there was a focus on what about communities of color? What about those low-end communities? And, and we just didn't hear enough about individuals with intellectual disabilities. So, Kurt, let's talk about what you all hope the study does beyond citing this unconscious bias uh, in terms of what do you hope, who should read this? And even if folks, again, it's all related to an unconscious bias sort of lens, what do you hope comes out of this? Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's certainly an interesting question. And um, I guess selfishly, I'm going to say everybody. Like, I hope everyone reads this because even though this is in the scientific published literature, I think it's something that we all need to be aware of because this population is actually being lumped into all of those categories that you just mentioned just a few minutes ago. They're perhaps low socioeconomics. They perhaps have comorbidities, but their actual impairments aren't necessarily being advocated for. And so what is one of the primary purpose of this paper? It is advocacy, mm-hmm. that we plan from a whole community concept. And what do we mean by that? That means every single group that has any kind of disability, they need to be heard from. They need to be part of the planning process so that we can account for those. One of the major issues that we have, and it was really interesting, um, not too long ago, I got to attend a dinner for the blind. Mm-hmm. It was a fundraising event and an advocacy event. And part of the dinner was we actually had to wear blackout sunglasses and actually eat our meal Mm -hmm. while we were sitting there. One of the more difficult things I've ever had to do in my life because I couldn't see ultimately what I was doing. And I noticed that what was a major challenge for me was not for those individuals that were visually impaired sitting Mm -hmm. at that table. And that's the other thing for clinicians. Like a lot of times they just can't put themselves in that mindset of a person with an intellectual disability that they don't have. So by advocacy, by having like social workers brought into the disaster management field who can go in and advocate for these people, by starting to um, train on ethics within medical schools and starting to plan for these types of events that involve population level health, that's ultimately how we're going to change this narrative and begin to solve this issue. And as we begin to wrap up, Kurt, I want to get your thoughts on your students being able to identify this patient group and then wanting to to study it and then have a a literature report about this? You know, it's funny you asked me that question. I actually got chills because I think we have the most outstanding students across the United States. And one of the things that I really love about our students and the way that our program is set up is that we have so many different disciplines. We have so many different educational backgrounds, work backgrounds, ethnicities, where people are coming from, their own biases that they bring into, honestly, to the field. And what I noticed from Brooke, who, again, is a social worker, she graduated with her social work degree and a master's in public health. So she got two degrees, is that she brought to light something that I would have never thought of. Mm -hmm. I'm trained as a physical scientist. I'm trained as a toxicologist. So these are things that aren't necessarily at the forefront of my mind, but when they are brought up in class, I knew that this was something that we had to look into more and that we had to try to solve and come up with a reason. And it's their expertise. It's the students' expertise 
that led ultimately to the creation of this paper. And I was got to be a part of it. And that's just awesome and incredible. And finally, Kurt, a question that every guest gets is I've and finally, Kurt, a question that pretty much every guest has been asked as it relates to this pandemic in terms of lessons learned and from your own personal standpoint with all the work that you've done from research and, and as a physical scientist there, what has been your takeaway from this and what lessons do you think will be learned? That science will ultimately save us, I believe. And I think a lot of people, they get into that mindset of why are things changing? Why is what's being said today different than what's being said yesterday? And the answer to that is we're learning. Mm -hmm. And we have to rely on the scientific community and we have to give them the time that they need to whether it's developing vaccines, whether it's developing appropriate personal protective equipment, whether it's instituting isolation orders or mask orders. We have to believe in what science is telling us and we have to put out credible information. So one of the things I've been told a lot in media is that it only takes one person to discount a tremendous amount of good information, Mm -hmm. whether it's credible or not. And so I think it's important for the scientific community, for the clinical community, that when they see these things that are being put out there that are false, that we all get on the same page and that we all go back to refute that information because we are learning. Right. And we're going to make mistakes. The scientific community will make mistakes at times. But we will learn and we will get there. And ultimately, we will put out the best evidence that we have available to us. And Kurt, what about the importance coming into this segment, as we talked about? And I feel like I've been talking about this for a long time, disparities and inequities in all of this at that intersection. And what do you hope is to take away from that as we we're looking at all these populations who are severely impacted over another population? And people are asking the question, well, why? Or I never knew that existed, which is like. You need a pandemic to amplify all of that? Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's the case. Because when I look at our field of disaster management, we are much more reactive than we are proactive. Mm-hmm. right? And, and that, that's actually a problem for us. We're always responding to what's just occurred, and we're not doing enough on the preparedness and mitigation side to get ready for these things. That's what education does. That's what programs like we have here in the College of Public Health do is that they hopefully promote that mitigation, those preparedness activities so that we can be ready to respond when these types of events occur. So I think that's important. We have to educate ourselves. But I also think if you look at the disciplines that are involved in this, so if you look at clinical medicine, if you look at disaster management, we all have some aspect of whether it's one health, whether it's all hazards, whether it's whole community. And what do all those things mean is inclusivity. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to be our key word, inclusivity. And we can't keep learning from our mistakes that this group was left out, this group was left out. If our mandate is whole community and one health, then that's what we should be doing and that's what we should be focusing on. Because ultimately we are one community. Mm-hmm. Kurt Harris, Director of the Institute for Disaster Management in the University of Georgia's College of Public Health. Kurt, thank you so much for taking the time. Compelling conversation. Thank you all for what you've been doing down there at the Institute. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate the opportunity. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's called COVID brain fog. It's not an official medical or scientific term, but it is how a lot of COVID-19 long haulers describe how they feel when their thinking is sluggish or not quite as sharp as it used to be before contracting the virus. I'll speak with a neuropsychologist who's involved with the testing of a prescription video game to curb COVID-19 brain fog. That's on tomorrow's program. 
If you missed any of today's show, you can find it online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.